you're listening to the dietitian cafe brought to you by new outra where we discuss the world of nutrition and dietetics my name's harriet smith i'm a registered dietitian and founder of hrs communications in today's episode we're going to shine a light on the dietetic specialty of inherited metabolic disorders we're sitting down to discuss the range of patients and conditions that dietitians manage in this specialty, including phenylketonuria, also known as PKU, and galactosemia. We're going to unpack the importance of diet in inherited metabolic disorders and talk about advancements in management over recent years. Joining me today to delve into this topic are specialist inherited metabolic disorder dietitians, that's quite a mouthful, Louise Robertson and Sarah Howe. In 2015, Sarah and Louise set up a dietetic blog called Dietitian's Life, which some of you may be familiar with, and they've been working together and friends ever since. The blog covers a mixture of general nutrition and PKU and has led to some amazing opportunities. In fact, you may have noticed they have a regular column in the NHD magazine. So without further ado, I'm going to hand over to the ladies so that they can tell us a bit more about themselves. First of all, over to you, Sarah. Hello, I'm Sarah. Um, I've worked in inherited metabolic disorders at the Queen Elizabeth Hospital in Birmingham since 2010 and not really ever looked back. So I first completed um, a biology degree at the University of York. Um, wasn't massively sure what I wanted to do, got really interested in dietetics. So that led to um, a postgraduate diploma in dietetics at Leeds Met University. And I qualified as a dietitian in 2008. So prior to working in inherited metabolic disorders, I worked in gastroenterology, oncology, and hematology. Um, in my current role, I've got a particular interest in glycogen storage disorders, tyrosinemia, and Alstom syndrome. And I actually look after those co- cohorts of patients in the role. So in my spare time, I'm a very busy mum of three children, um, really love my exercise, running. I like to journal, and I've just started learning to play the piano. Brilliant, thanks. And over to Louise. Hi, my name's Louise. I'm also a specialist dietitian in inherited metabolic disorders at the Queen Elizabeth Hospital in Birmingham, where I helped to set up the service back in 2008. I qualified as a dietitian in 2002 from the University of Surrey. I'm also the dietitian for the Galactosemia Support Group in the UK, and I'm also on the committee for the dietitians group of the British Inherited Metabolic Diseases Group. I regularly present at conferences at home and abroad, write articles, and with Sarah, we coordinated and contributed to the new section, Inherited Metabolic Disorders in Adults, in the 2015 and 2019 edition of the Manual of Dietetic Practice. I have two daughters, and I play the cello in my local amateur orchestra, and I've recently taken up sewing my own clothes. Wow, we've got a lot of talent with us today. So um, thank you. And also you're great friends as well. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Brilliant. (laughs) First of all, as you guys probably know from the podcast, we delve into our quick fire questions. So these are so that our listeners can get to know you on a bit more of a personal basis. So Sarah, let's start with you. What would your perfect day look like? I think mine and Louisa's days are going to be quite similar, aren't they? We were saying, um, just because I'm so, so busy most of the time with the little ones, a day would probably be a day where I can do lots of different things I enjoy. So it'd be probably spending a bit of time with friends and family, but got to be some exercise in there, um, get out, get some fresh air, have to order some food, <laughs> some lovely food to enjoy, um, get to do a bit of journaling, get to play the piano, get to watch a bit of Netflix, 
um yeah definitely just some chilled out time how about you louise (laughs) say that sounds like a busy day to me (laughs) i think being having two jobs and two children i would just like a day to myself to do what i wanted it probably would be to sit down and do some sewing and sew myself something and next question um louise do you have a favorite pet or animal Oh, they don't have any pets, even though my children keep asking. Um, but I did have a cat and a hamster when I was little. So I think cats would be my favourite. Sarah, are you an animal household? Um, we've actually got a hamster, which I wasn't also too keen on getting. But actually, now we've, we've got him, he's lovely. So I'll probably go with, with the, the little hamster I have, who's the tamest little thing. And my eldest daughter throws him around and he seems to not mind. because <laughs> that's So he's lovely. I'll go with a hamster. A resilient little thing then. Yeah. And then final question. If you could choose one superpower, Louise, what would it be? I think it would be teleportation. So to get somewhere with a click of a finger and not have to travel. And how about you, Sarah? Mine would be a click of a finger. It would be an instant clean house, 100%. (laughs) I can definitely relate to you on that one. (laughs) Thank you so much. So we're going to delve into our episode um, topics for discussion all about inherited metabolic disorders today. So Louise, starting with you, you've obviously been a specialist dietitian in inherited metabolic disorders for nearly 15 years. So what is it that drew you to this area of dietetics and kept you in it for so many years? Yes, it is a fascinating area. And I think that's one of the reasons I've stayed in it for so long. But 15 years ago, I had no idea what an inherited metabolic disorders dietitian was, kind of fell into the role. I was um, doing a maternity leave for a Burns cover in Birmingham. And at the time, I wanted to get a mortgage and I needed a permanent job. And this new job came up to set up the IMD service in Birmingham. And I thought, oh, yeah, well, I'll try that. And um I phoned around a few local dietitians and got some experience and then went for the job and got it. So yeah, never looked back after then. And Sarah, in terms of um, this very specialist area of dietetics, can you tell us a bit about your journey to get to your current role now? And did you know that you always wanted to specialize in inherited metabolic disorders? I'm going to be really honest. The answer to that was no. (laughs) I remember learning about PKU at university and thinking, seriously, I'm I'm not going to do that. I don't think I'll ever do that. But it was um, it was when I was working in um, ITU and another hospital in Birmingham. Um, one of the patients in our cohort now actually was in hospital there, um, and I was covering. So I had to liaise with Louise over the telephone, and their consultant was away as well. So they were everyone felt like they were winging it a bit, um, and that's when I, I think it was a patient with a urea cycle disorder, all new to me, and that's how I got interested. Um, and it was just it just so happened at the time Louise was about to go off on maternity leave and they were looking to find someone to fill the post. Um, it was a bit of a jump in banding and I just thought, oh, it's really interesting. I've got nothing to lose. Um, I'll go for the job. Got it. And that was 12 years ago and also not really ever looked back at all. Yeah. yeah. And and I know it's such a specialist area. And lot, I think a lot of people listening probably won't have had much um, experience or interaction with patients living with inherited metabolic disorders. So can you just explain to us, Louise, do all patients who live with IMDs require support from a dietitian? So 
not all of them, but there are a lot of IMDs. There are over 600 IMDs. So individually, they are very rare, but collectively, they are more common. So there are lots of different disorders. So the ones that we as dietitians get involved in are mainly disorders of energy metabolism, where something has gone wrong either with protein or amino acid metabolism or carbohydrate or fat metabolism. And then we have to tailor the diet to whatever's gone wrong to help either provide energy or prevent um, buildup of toxic metabolites. So it could be that... Um, some of the disorders we look after, the only treatment is diet, and that might be PKU or galactosemia or some of the fatty acid disorders. There may be some disorders that require a diet and medication. So that might be such as tyrosinemia or homocystinuria or some of the urea cycle disorders. Or there could be disorders that are just treated with medication or there could be disorders that need more um, of the MDT input uh, or physiotherapy where they get muscle weakness. Um, or some of them might just need a supportive dietetic approach. So there might be some degenerative, degenerative disorders where over time they lose their muscles and they lose their swallow. So they might require input um, for tube feeding with us. So all sorts of different things and different diets. Do you see a large range of um, inherited metabolic disorders in your role? And are there any that require um, kind of more support from a dietitian? Um, we do see um, a large, a wide range of IMDs in our role. But like as, as I was thinking about, the biggest cohort we've had so far is PKU. We're looking at sort of like around 200 of our patients are, are PKU. Um, we also have um, glycogen storage disorders, um, also galactosemia. We also look after um, a wide range of fatty acid oxidation disorders, um, medium chain fatty acid oxidation disorders and very long chain. We also have um, a smaller group as well of like maple syrup urine disorders. Um, in terms of what we think requires more the most input from a, from a dietitian is usually our amino acid based disorders, um, PKU, um, our pregnant PKUs and maple syrup urine disorders as well so for our PKUs the reason why it's, it's, it's we, they need the most sort of help and support is because they have to follow a very low phenyl alanine diet and this comes in kind of like four steps so they have to avoid very very high phenylalanine foods they have to substitute um, with protein substitute that provides them with all the essential <clears throat> vitamins and minerals um, and amino acids um, they also have a, have a small amount of phenylalanine <clears throat> in exchanges and low protein foods on prescription as well. It sounds like um, these patients that you um, work with on a day to day basis are quite complex. And I can imagine you're working with lots of different um, conditions as well. So the next question is probably quite difficult to answer because I appreciate there's not a typical day for you. But Louise, can you talk us through what um, a day in the life of Louise at work looks like? Well, it's it's very different to being a ward dietitian where you would see patients mm -hmm. on the ward all day. We see patients in outpatient clinics, but we spend a lot of time in the office as well. So we have regular clinics every week, but we do spend a lot of time in the office 
um, answering emails, answering phone calls, doing extra work that's generated by clinics, chasing up patients, maybe managing our maternal PKU patients. Um, sometimes if our patients are unwell, then they will call us for advice. They might need their emergency regime to stop them to going into, or stop them metabolically decompensating. And if that happens, we would give advice over the phone. If they had to come into hospital, we would might call ahead to the hospital, give advice to A&E. If they're admitted, we would then go and see them on the ward and um, be their dietitian on the ward. So we don't just stop at one point, we follow them all the way through. We also do home visits. Um, so it's sometimes you really need to get to know our patients. So a home visit is essential. Um, they might be on a complex tube feed and we need to check that everything's being given at home. We might even do a home visit to a college or to a workplace to help support our patients as well. We also look after people with learning difficulties. So it might be going to the care home and doing some training there as well. So very, very varied, um, but much more office based um, than, than we used to be mm -hmm. rather than being ward based. Yeah, it sounds very um, diverse, your role. And obviously you mentioned a lot of the work that you do is outpatient, so clinics or doing visits or phone calls. Um, but you also mentioned that sometimes patients have to come into hospital. So Sarah, can you um, explain a bit more about that? And is that sort of something that you tend to see most days at work? No, it's it's we do try to work hard to try and keep patients at home by managing them at home if they become unwell. So quite a lot as Louise was mentioning, we look after patients who have problems with energy disorders, so any problems with metabolizing fat or carbohydrate or protein. Um, and for some of them, when they become unwell, um, obviously if you imagine you're unwell, you can't keep anything down, or if you have a fever, your body's is catabolic, it starts to use protein, fat, um, or carbohydrate stores for energy. But for patients with metabolic disorders, this causes a buildup of potentially toxic metabolites. So what we need to do with them when they're at home is to provide something called, and um, what we try and do at home and manage them at home is an emergency regime, which is to give them a good supply um, of carbohydrate in a sugar form. We use like a hopefully like a powder that they can that they can take in a drink form every couple of hours. However, if People are very unwell at home, like if they're vomiting, diarrhea, they just can't keep anything down quite often. This then ends up in a call to us or, more, or our consultants, uh, or they just come to our hospital because they know that's where they're going to get looked after and we know them. Um, and if they can be quite unwell, that's when they would probably need more intensive support. So that could be um, usually starting off with like um, IV dextrose to drip to give them that constant supply um, of energy to try and prevent that catabolism or halt it a little bit. Um, it depends on the condition, really. Like, for example, our glycogen storage disorders, quite often they just would need like um, a regular feed, a regular supply um, of energy. If it's a more, maybe more complex condition like a urea cycle disorder that, or a fatty acid oxidation disorder where we're looking at restricting protein or restricting fat, that would involve, was probably slightly panicking a bit and working out a modular feed to give them enough energy um, and the right amount of, uh, of protein and fat to help them with their recovery alongside any medical treatment that they need. Um, this might not necessarily always be in our hospital, though this could be um, like another hospital. So we're quite often liaising with other dietitians um, or health professionals as, as well, really. That's not too often, but when it does happen, it can take up the majority of your day or week, depending on, on how well the patient is. 
Now, obviously, we just talked about patients when they have, um, you know, unwell episodes, but um, looking more broadly in terms of managing these patients, because you mentioned a lot of them are obviously inherited metabolic diseases, which can be lifelong. So, Louise, at what stage do you tend to come across these patients? Do you work with both children and adults or is it just adults? And generally, how frequently do you need to review and have dietetic input with this these kinds of patients? Yeah, so we just work in an adult hospital, so we don't see paediatrics. So all the children are looked after by the Birmingham Children's Hospital with their team that have been going um, for a very long time. So our adult team only started 14 years ago when I started the service. And up to that point, all the adults were either staying at the children's hospital or they'd be moved over to a liver metabolic service. So there was a real need for the adult service. So um, now when they get to 16, they come over to the adult hospital, but it doesn't start there. We have a good transition process where our colleague Claire will go over to the children's hospital and meet um, the young people from when they're 14. So she'll meet them a couple of times. Um, and then when they're 16, they move over to the adult service and then the paediatric team will come to clinic for their either first or second appointment um, and then they'll move over into the adult clinic. So most of our patients come from the children's hospital because they are inherited disorders. But very occasionally we have um, patients that present are milder and present later. So, for example, um, we have a lady with um, a very long chain fatty acid disorder and she didn't present with it until she ran a marathon and her body couldn't handle it because she had to be using fat as her energy and she couldn't because she couldn't break down her very long chain fats. And then this caused um, her to become very unwell. She got severe kidney problems and and she probably almost died. (laughs) Um, And then they worked out what was wrong with her and now um she comes to see us and and we advise her on her diet and, and not to run marathons <laughs> without proper dietary without carbohydrates <laughs> yeah so um mainly and sometimes we get patients um who are what we call a loss to follow-up so some of the pku patients um back in the 80s they thought that they could come off diets Um, when their brain has stopped growing, maybe in their teenage years. So they said, fine, you're fine. You can come go on a normal diet now. Um, But now we realize it's diet for life because of all the problems the high phenylalanine levels cause. And we get, sometimes we get people coming back to us wanting to go back on diet because they feel so dreadful. So coming out of the woodwork as well. That's really, really interesting. And Sarah, just going slightly off script here, but building on what Louise said, it sounds like pregnancy is a really difficult time for someone with an inherited metabolic disorder. Can you explain why dietetic support is really important during pregnancy? Yeah, of course. So the biggest cohort of patients we look after that need support with pregnancy um, is PKU. There are other conditions as well, but um, we are finding for example, with some, for example, maple syrup, we haven't had many or tyrosinemia, we haven't had many. So we often find that we're learning as we go along or kind of waiting for that to happen, if that makes sense. Um, but with um, PKU, it's 
they need an awful lot of support because um, normally for adults, it's recommended they keep their phenylalanine levels under a value of 600. During pregnancy, this number goes down to under, well, the official guidelines under 360, but we try and get them a little bit lower than that under 250. Um, and that's just because when the phenylalanine crosses the placenta, the concentration goes up by 1.5 times. So which can be harmful to the development of the baby. So um, heart and brain and sort of size as well so there's can be lots of problems there so for these ladies we have some who come to us where they would like to plan their pregnancy and they get their levels under in the right place before they start but unfortunately we do have a lot of ladies that come to us off diet um, and unplanned and this can be very very difficult and challenging we then have to get their phenyl level phenylalanine levels down within range as quickly as we possibly can usually aiming within the first sort of eight to ten weeks um, and then you've got to imagine as well, going through pregnancy, it can be quite stressful with all the things that can come along with it. So um, morning sickness, um, generally not being able to eat, poor appetite, um, just generally feeling tired and unwell. Um, and that can be quite difficult if you haven't got PKU to always eat at the same time or eat enough, eat regularly. So for these ladies with PKU, it's vital that they're eating enough because if they don't eat enough, that can cause their phenylalanine levels to go up because they become catabolic. They also have to take their protein substitute, which I mentioned is the drinks to provide all the essential amino acids and vitamins and minerals. And if they're throwing that up or they don't like it, it can be challenging because they still have to take it and we're we're trying hard to switch it around and make sure we get enough um, low protein food on prescription for them. Their exchanges can go down to um, three. And usually what we start on the more severe cases, so that's only three grams of protein. Um, this can go up as the pregnancy goes on. Um, but for women in itself, that can be challenging to go up to quite high exchanges. Um, so it, they just need us um they usually need to speak to us a couple of times a week when they're sending in their levels, but we can find we're talking to our patients very, very regularly to support them um, and liaising with like the midwives, maybe um, mental health consultants to help them out as well. Um, so it can be a really hard time for them. So that's they do need a lot of support. Yeah, sounds very complicated. And you mentioned exchanges. Can you just explain um, a bit more to people like myself who are perhaps not yeah. familiar with what yeah. exchanges are? Um, so it's it, we, we even with PKU, um, everybody does need a small, a certain set amount of phenylalanine. This uh, amount can vary depending on how severe someone's PKU is. So if they're quite severe, we call that more of a classical case of PKU, um, and they can be on a lower number of exchanges. And what these are is we would class it as it's 50 milligrams of, of phenylalanine, which is equivalent to about one gram of protein. So if we say three exchanges, we mean about three grams of protein. Um, and one gram can be like, I don't know, like a packet of crisps or something or uh, 20 grams of baked beans or 30 grams, 30, 35 grams of sweet corn. So it's, it's quite small amounts that they have to measure out, basically. But as I said, some of our PQs are a little bit less severe and they may be on slightly more. So maybe 10 or 15 grams or exchanges. Um, yeah. So what I'm hearing is it's quite a complex condition, not only for dietitians working patients, but also for the patients actually to manage themselves. Um, and obviously this is quite a specialist area to work in, Louise. So I'm wondering, do IMD dietitians only work at specialist centers or will you, will dietitians, you know, band five, band six dietitians, might they come across IMD patients in their caseloads? So generally there will be specialist centers so we've got Birmingham, two in London, Cardiff, um, Glasgow, Salford, 
Cambridge, Sheffield, Bristol, Bristol, and they're the main centres. Um, so, but that doesn't mean an IMD patient can turn up on the ward. They they live all around the country. They don't just live in those cities. So there is a possibility um, that they could turn up on the ward with something else, especially with adults and adults that are living longer. They're going to get the same complications that other adults who are uh, getting older will get as well. And that, that makes it complicated as well. So they might come in for an operation they might have had a heart attack. It might be diabetes. So they might need some nutritional, nutritional advice on top of their PKU. Mm-hmm. So I always say to um, our um, dietitians in the department, you know, if they come across an IMD patient on the ward, don't panic. Please don't panic. <laughs> <laughs> Speak to the patient because actually they've been doing that all their lives. So they can tell you exactly what they should be eating and what they shouldn't be eating and then ask them who their IMD dietitian is and liaise with them and do some joint working. Actually, you've raised a really good point there, joint, <coughs> joint working. It sounds like um, there's a lot of multidisciplinary working in IMD. Um, Sarah, to what extent do you interact with other members of the multidisciplinary team? Well, we have a lovely team, so we do that sort of every day. So in our team, um, we have um, consultants, uh, registrars, we have um, a team pharmacist, and specialist nurses. We did have a, an amazing psychologist. We're looking to get another because that was that was vital um, in our in our team. Um, we have a physio. There's research team as well because it's a fascinating area. There's always lots going on, um, and an admin team as well who support us. Um, so some of our clinics are multi, completely multidisciplinary. I, I'm in um, quite look after quite a rare condition called Alstrom syndrome, where we have the only centre in Birmingham, and this is um, a condition which is it's a ciliopathy. Um, so it's the, the cilia affected, like in all the cells in the body, but it's so complex because um, these patients are, are, can be often deaf, blind, suffer from obesity, diabetes, heart, um, renal and uh, liver problems. So they need a, a wide team that involves um, sort of audiology as well, cardiac um uh, renal and respiratory so it's a big big team so we we will be lazy, liaising with them throughout the clinic and afterwards during the multidisciplinary meeting and then it's not just um within our hospital as I mentioned before if if someone is unwell in hospital you'll be looking to reach out to other dietitians or other professionals um or it may be like people you know in a care home maybe within a school so it it, it could be all walks of life really um, a teacher um social worker so it's yeah, we do have to liaise with a wide range of like professionals and um, pharmacies and GP surgeons. Oh yes, yeah. <laughs> so we have a problem. We quite often have problems getting hold of um, prescriptions for our patients, especially with PKU, because they, they have such a wide range of products with their protein substitute and low protein foods as well. So low protein foods, um, minimal phenylalanine or pretty much no phenylalanine. Um, so they. This can be breads, pasta, rice, biscuits, flour. There's so many things to make sure that they're getting adequate carbohydrate and adequate energy in their diet and variety. Um, it's often quite hard to get everything prescribed as we would like. Um, so we often spend time liaising with GPs and the pharmacists out in the community as well, as well as delivery companies that um, arrange deliveries to the patients. Mm. So we do spend quite a bit of time doing that as well. <laughs> And you you mentioned some of the foods and how difficult it can be to um, obtain them and also some of the food substitutes that patients have to take. Now, I I understand that a short while ago, the two of you actually undertook a challenge of following a low phenylalanine diet for a week. How did you find that experience, Louise? 
Now you say a short while ago, and actually it was probably about eight years ago that we did it. Do you think? Um, yeah, I think it was 2000, and I want to say 2015. So we should do it again, shouldn't we? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we decided to do it together for a week. and We set ourselves seven exchanges and we got lots of different protein substitutes to try, yeah. lots of foods to try, yeah. and it, it really was eye-opening I think we did it quite differently though, didn't we? Um, Louise is a much better cook and um, she was quite, you wanted to try all the low protein foods and see, yeah. or I was very much like, I'm going to manage these seven exchanges, but have more sort of what we would class as normal foods. So I wanted to use normal rice. I wanted a bit of chocolate. I still wanted, I think I had low gluten-free bread, which is about one exchange per slice and a bit of hummus, that kind of thing. Um, and I found the protein substitute awful at first, but I got used to it. But whereas it went the other way for you, didn't you? You could take it at the start, but by the end of the week, yeah, you couldn't. It's difficult. <laughs> yeah. And they're drinks. You can get ready-made drinks. Oh, you yeah. can get powder drinks and you can get tablets. Mm. And I remember trying to take the tablets and to get your full dose of protein per day, you need to take 75 of these tablets. And they're a bit like... Um, like a paracetamol caplet, aren't they? Bigger, bigger. Bigger. Yeah. And I remember getting to five and just thinking, oh, I can't get any more down. <laughs> I think I'll have to go back to the um, to the drinks yeah. after then. But I, like Sarah said, I really enjoyed, you know, making the bread in the bread machine. And this sounds really sad, but when I got married, I put a Panasonic bread machine on my wedding list because I knew that was the particular bread machine that you use to make this special <laughs> low protein bread in. <laughs> so I had the bread maker ready and I could, I enjoyed making the bread in the bread maker, the low protein mm. bread and the cakes and things. Eating out was, we did eat out and that was hard um, because at the time, I think the menus might be a little bit better now, but even with the vegan menu, we didn't know. We had some, I think, was it sweet corn fritters? We didn't really know exactly how much was in there. We had salad at the time, rocket lettuces would now be counted and, and, fries. and fries, but it just proves that you quite easily would go over your exchanges if you're eating out, really, if you were just going for, even for the lowest protein you think you could find, there's probably going to always be more in it. And that was probably the reality, is the reality for our patients when they eat out. That's really interesting, the personal experiences that you had. And I'm very impressed, Louise, with the dedication with the uh, wedding gift. <laughs> um, how did it help you to relate to your patients, do you think, that personal experience of following the diet? Um, with, I think, or Sarah <laughs> I think yeah. I, as I mentioned with the eating out but I think I was just hungry like I think I realised you get to the end of the day and if you haven't planned properly what's in the fridge or have you made something that you can have like leftovers or something in batch cooking which we always advise our patients to do I had my husband my husband does a lot of the cooking so he just made things and just omitted the protein so that was fine but if I was cooking would I have been able to do that so it got to the end of the day sometime and I was just like oh I'll just have some raisins or I'll have another protein substitute drink just to have something to tide me over until the next morning and because our patients with PKU um because if they've got high levels they do have problems sometimes with like what well, they do organizing planning executive function and if they've got those problems as well and then planning for the next day or the week ahead, you could see how difficult it was just to easily go off, just order something they maybe shouldn't be having or eat something they shouldn't or just not eat properly at all. Um, so it made me realise how hard it must be just on a day-to-day -day basis. And we, we wrote it all up on our blog mm -hmm. at the time. And I still have patients yeah. come to me and say, oh, 
I've just read your blog of you following the diet. <laughs> oh, yes. Um, yes, that was a little while ago. <laughs> we've um we've linked to your blog actually in the show notes so if anyone wants to go and delve into that in a bit more detail you'll be able to find that in the show notes um I also just wanted to ask you Louise do patients have consequences if they don't adhere to their dietary restrictions and what can those consequences look like in IMDs so it really depends on the disorder um so for example in PKU, which we've talked quite a lot about, there are it's really subtle um, differences. If their phenylalanine levels are high, they report things like being very tired, having what they call a brain fog, they get lots of headaches, their organizational skills are worse. And you can imagine all those things are then they, it's really hard for them to follow the diet if they can't be organized if they're really tired they come home from work and they just want to to go to sleep um so it's a general quality of life it's not that they're gonna die if their fee no. levels are high whereas if you get something like maple syrup urine disease that's where um the branch chain amino acids are not broken down properly and especially leucine and leucine is toxic to the brain so if that rises because they've eaten um, too much protein over a long period of time, or they become unwell, catabolic, and their leucine rises, then they could get brain damage from that. So it's more crucial in MSUD to keep their levels down than it would be in phenylalanine. Oh, PKU. <laughs> <laughs> um, then there's other disorders such as urea cycle disorders, where if the they eat too much protein and don't take their medication. They can't break down their ammonia properly, so their ammonia levels will rise. And again, they will get um, brain damage from it. So it, it really does depend on the disorder. Yeah, and I guess it really reiterates just how important dietetic support is when those consequences can be so severe. So just moving on to um, the evidence space behind inherited metabolic disorders, um, Congratulations, Louise, on your the publication of your paper, Dietetic Management of Adults with PKU in the UK, a care consensus document. Um, so I think you've already given us a nice overview of PKU and you, you've both talked through the dietetic treatment. So I wanted to ask you a bit more about the published standard operating procedure and why you feel there's a need for this publication. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah. So I led a group of seven dietitians, all specialising in adults with PKU, to write this SOP. So there are no standards in the UK. So we thought instead of each centre writing their own standards, that we would come together and write it together. So it's a step-by-step -step guide of how a dietitian would manage an adult with PKU based on the European guidelines from 2017 and our collective experience. And then once we had written it, we were encouraged to publish it and write a supporting paper to go with it. So the SOP and the paper made us focus on the areas of PKU in adulthood that are less thought of. For example, patients often struggle with weight management. Some patients struggle with eating disorders due to the nature of the diet. And as our patients get older, they will require more protein. And the protein will mainly come from the protein substitutes, which if they are struggling to take them to start with, then that's going to be a problem. 
So now we want to extend our SOPs into other disorders. And Sarah's leading on a tyrosinemia one, and I'm leading on a galactosemia one. And also there's a group um, looking at maternal PKU as well, just to try and help standardize everything in the UK. Brilliant. And we have also linked to your paper in the show notes. So if people are interested in reading that in a bit more detail, you can certainly have a look at that after this episode. Um, in terms of the training then that you receive as inherited metabolic disorder dietitians, Sarah, can you explain, is there established UK training that you do to specialize in this role or is it something that you tend to learn on the job? Um, when I started, it was something <laughs> that I did learn on, on the job. Definitely. There uh, at the time I started, there was, um, or there still is, like a, a module in paediatrics, um, like a master's module where you would go and sit and, and learn. But that was, I mean, it's very, very paediatric based. It's great for giving you like a baseline and all the conditions, but not necessarily extendable to, to adults. Um, so Louise, what was one of the reasons why Louise said she wanted to write sort of the SOP for PKU? Because that would obviously would help and why we're continuing with sort of the other conditions. And I know it's for something that was wanted to be done probably since I started the job. So it's a long time coming, but good it's come. And also... So um, back in 2017, um, Louise and her colleague Suzanne Ford, who's the dietitian for the National Society of PKU, um, put together a sort of a one-day course um, into for the dietary man management of adults with, with IMDs. Um, so I think COVID put a bit of a spanner in the works back in, in 2020, but this is hoping to happen again at some point in 2023. And this um, will be sort of a course that's more of an adult focus and an overview over the disorders and, and their treatment management. So it's a case of watch this space, I guess. Um, and it sounds like there are lots of kind of exciting advances coming up in the area of IMD. So um, Louise, are there have there been any recent advances in the dietary or medical treatments that you've seen in your clinical practice since you've been working in this area? So, well, so there's always been in terms of PKU, there's always been a drug um, since I started the job, um, Saproptin, but it hasn't been available um, in in the UK until literally over the last 12 months. Um, so we're just starting to test our patients now and see if it works for them. So basically what Saproptin does, um, it, it boosts um, the enzyme phenylalanine hydroxylase, which is either fully defective for people with PKU or working a little bit if they've got a milder version of PKU. Um, so our patients at the moment, a lot of them already have or are having genetic testing to see sort of the severity of their PK to see if they may respond. If they're coming as a bit milder, we can test them. Um, if they're more severe, it's unlikely they're going to respond to this. It's only a small subset of our of our cohort who we think who will. But for them, if it, it does work, could be pretty, um, not necessarily life-changing, but would allow them to have more um, flexibility with their diet. Um, so we're finding some of our patients who are responding um, are able to push their exchanges up to higher levels whilst also keeping their phenylalanine levels under the 600 range that we want for for adults. Um, so that's been quite exciting for us and for our, our patients in sort of the last 12 months. Um, but there's a couple of other things, isn't there, as well? Yeah, there are, there are other um, therapies for PKU in the pipeline. Um, so work that's been going on in the U.S., is on a injection called Palenzeek or PEGPAL, where they would inject the um, enzyme phenylalanine hydroxylase um, maybe twice a week. And this helps bring their phenylalanine levels down almost to, to normal or even more than less than normal, um, which is really exciting. Although I think it takes a little while to work. They have to inject themselves for a little while and they can get injection site problems. 
But the problem is, and the problem with sapopterin has been so long coming is because it's been so expensive and the NHS um, wouldn't fund it for years and years and years. So for example, at, at the time, it might have cost £60,000 a year for um, for sapopterin, mm-hmm. whereas the NHS England was saying, well, diet only costs £12,000 to £15,000 a year. So we've got a treatment that already works. So why do we need a drug that costs four mm-hmm. times the amount? And then the patent um, ran out mm-hmm. and a more generic version has been made. And this is why the NHS can afford the mm-hmm. drug. And this is why we've only started using it. But this will be the same problem with this injection from the US. It's going to be way too expensive and the NHS yeah. are not going to fund it. And, be, and the drug company know that. So they're not even coming to the UK to do their trials on it because they know that the NHS yeah. won't fund it. So it's really frustrating for us and for the patients yeah. that there are treatments out there. But because of the cost of them, it's it's, it's difficult prohibiting yeah. it for them. There are a few other things in the pipeline that are yeah. coming along as well. Things like um, creating a tablet or a probiotic, which has also got the uh, the enzyme in. So the theory being is that they would take this tablet at the same time as the food and then the enzyme would be released and it would break down the phenylalanine in the gut and help lower levels. Again, that's all... Um, in the future. Yeah, in the future, <laughs> experimental stage. So I think... In 10 years time, we will have a toolkit for people with PKU. Mm-hmm. We've got all these different drugs to try. And the other thing that will is coming is, is gene therapy. So we've got a big research team at our, in our centre and they've been doing gene therapy trials for OTC, which is one of the urea cycle disorders and started gene therapy for PKU as well. So that is really, really exciting. So in, in theory, it would be a one-off infusion um, to direct, go direct to the liver that would then um, give them the gene that would code for phenylalanine mm-hmm. hydroxylase. And then in theory, help bring their fee levels down, which is great. And then we think, oh, as dietitians, we might lose our jobs because they'll all, <laughs> all be cured. But actually, we'll probably spend a quite a long time teaching them how to eat protein again because they've been so averse to it and not allowed to eat it through their childhood and growing up. And then you suddenly say to someone, oh, you can eat protein now. Uh, it's going to be very difficult yeah. for them. Yeah, we were struggling just with our patients who are now allowed to eat maybe 10 grams extra a day on saproctorin. They don't know what to have or they just can't even stomach the thought of having meat, fish or eggs because they've never been able to have it. Um, And their diet quality um, isn't fantastic as well. So um, they will decide to get their exchanges from chips or crisps or very carbohydrate, beigey kind of foods. Um, So it's it's an education for them as well to look at healthy eating and a a balanced diet and getting their exchanges from good sources of of protein as well. So as as Louise said, I don't think our job is ever going to be over with really. (laughs) No, it sounds like the next decade, there's going to be some some real revolutionary changes to patient care in IMDs. Is is there any research that's being conducted at the moment or any um, papers that have recently come out that you would particularly like to highlight in this episode, Louise? Obviously, you've covered quite a lot there with all the gene therapy and things. So um, you've probably given us a good idea of what we've got coming in the next few years already. Um, And one of the other things that we're hoping will come soon is home phenylalanine monitoring or testing, a bit like doing your blood sugars 
at home. So at the moment, um, they do dried blood spot cards. So they get a card, which is exactly the same as a newborn baby screening card. They have to prick their finger and they drip the blood out into the circles. It dries, they put it in the envelope, they put it in the post to their local metabolic lab. Obviously, it relies on the postal service <laughs> to get there. And of course, at the moment, with all the postal strikes, all they're all being held up, they get analysed, they get emailed to us, the lab emails us as dietitians, and then we contact them with the results and then any changes they need to make. And that can take up to a week, yeah. can't it? And if you think, and then you say, oh, what did you eat a week ago when you took that level? They'll be like, oh... So especially for pregnancy, where you need to know really yeah. then and there what's going on with your levels to make changes quickly, to be able to do it at home. And I think the new um, kits, um, you put them in and it takes maybe 30 minutes or something to analyze. And then it comes back with the blood spot level with the phenylalanine level, which will be amazing. But I think um, it's been developed in the Netherlands, but at the moment it's quite expensive. Like each strip to do it would be very expensive. So it wouldn't be available for everybody, but maybe for people at the pregnancies who really need to know what's going on at that time, it might be. Um, so I think we're definitely looking forward to that coming along. It's not another watch your space, I guess. Perhaps mm-hmm. when we, if we do a podcast again in a few years, this um, space that you work in will look very different. Yeah. So just to finish the episode, I'd love to ask you both what you find the biggest challenge, but also the biggest reward working in the area of inherited metabolic diseases. So Sarah, let's go go to you first. What's the biggest challenge and what do you enjoy most? Probably the same kind of thing, really. I think it, the most challenging part of it is um, watch, see, knowing what our patients could be like if they could follow their diet and stick to it, but watching the fact that it's just so difficult and so hard for them to do it. So, and that is across the board, really, of all of the conditions, really. Possibly galactosemia, that they're, they're pretty good, aren't they? Following their low lactose diet, but in so many of the conditions, it, it's just a, a struggle. Um, in particular, like uh, with with the PKUs, and we therefore find that I don't find feel that I'm just a dietitian in my role. Um, I feel like I could be. I, for example, I speak to one of our PKUs every month. And I feel like a counsellor, sometimes even more of a friend. Just I think sometimes it's coming for support with the diet, but also with sort of helping her with her GP or signposting in the right direction with, with something else or just a general chat every month to keep her going and keep her sort of a, a going as best as she can with, with her diet. So that is, it is so challenging. But at the same time, it's probably the most rewarding part because our patients come to us when they come from the children's or when we take them on, we do have them for life. Therefore, we get to know them. And um, so some patients I know since I started the job 12 years ago now, um, so it's very different to the roles I've had before in the wards where you would see someone possibly once, maybe twice, and then you, you may never see them again. Um, so I really enjoy that aspect. I um, Because of the complexity of the conditions, their chronic conditions, many people do suffer with um, mental health, health problems, anxiety. They can come hand in hand with the disorders as well and depression. Um, and, you know, and I... I shouldn't say I enjoy that aspect, but I do quite like that aspect of helping them through and um, sort of counselling them in a little in a little way as well. Yeah. yeah, and like you, Sarah, being doing it for so long and seeing seeing some patients blossom and doing really well. So I can think of a few young teenagers 
boys who just were like didn't care and then they come round in full circle and actually they want to be on their diet and they mm. want your help and it's so lovely to see that they come back to you for that help the other really challenging thing as we've said before is pregnancy um but on the other hand it's so lovely when you get to the end of that pregnancy and they send you a message with a picture of their baby on and say oh thank you very much for helping us us through the pregnancy uh, I, that's really rewarding mm. for us because we spend so much time um we become their best friends we say yeah. don't we because we speak to them at least twice a week every week with levels or any queries that they need and um, just to see them get through that as well that that's it's I love I love that feeling I think it's nice as well to be in an area where you know diet is making such a big difference and you really feel valued as part of the team and the doctors they do come to you they want your support they want your help um, and they want your input which um which is really nice um as well and as I said you just you do feel very very valued and your opinion and your expertise is valued and that, that's lovely as well yeah, it definitely sounds like a rewarding area where dietitians are having big impacts. And hopefully we might have inspired some people who are listening to this episode to maybe consider a career in um, inherited metabolic disorders. Do you, either of you have any advice if anyone is interested in working in this area, how could they go about making that transition? Any advice? Yes. So I always say get a good grounding um, in dietetics first because, yes, it is quite specialised, but they always end up with IBS mm-hmm. or diabetes or or we've got so patients. Weight management advice. Yeah, weight yeah, management. Or nutrition support. <laughs> or um, ulcerative colitis alongside mm-hmm. there. Um, mm-hmm. So we'll be like messaging the gastro yeah. dietitian, are we doing this right along yeah. with their PKU or... Um, so definitely get that that broad grounding, um, go on the wards, work on the wards, and then when you're ready, um, then then look for an IMD job. And it could be that you might want to do some shadowing or there's loads of sites to look at, such as the NSPK, you have loads of information on there. There are lots of, there's some podcasts out there to listen to. There's lots of training actually a lot um, a lot of the nutritional companies do have their own training sites and they record webinars and podcasts that you can listen to as well um so showing that you're keen and showing you've got that interest will really really help as well um saying that um we we there are a lot of jobs coming up that that need to be filled as well. Um, keep an eye out. <laughs> yeah, so please keep an eye out. An eye out. And it's such a small world, IMD, isn't it? Mm-hmm. That yeah. we all know each other. We have regular meetings. We have regular BIMDG dietitians meetings, either on person or on Zoom. Regular conferences, and where everybody seems to stay in it for a long mm-hmm. time. So you do get to know a lot of people, and that that's great as well. Is there a BDA specialist group for inherited metabolic disorders? So there isn't because of the British Inherited Metabolic Diseases Group. Right. Okay. Um, So um, although we did talk about being affiliated, but I don't think that's quite happened yet. Okay, great. Well, we can certainly link to some of those groups that you mentioned would would be worth joining in the show notes. So... um, All that remains for me to say is thank you very much, Sarah and Louise, for your time this evening and for inspiring us about all things inherited metabolic disorders. 
A huge thank you to New Outra for making this podcast possible. If you enjoy listening to The Dietitian Cafe, please consider subscribing and leaving a review or five-star rating so that we can reach even more health professionals. You can also follow New Outra on social media at New Outra across all platforms to keep up to date with the podcast and to hear the latest updates on medical nutrition. Thank you for listening and our next episode will be out soon. Thank you.